Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Michael Alexander, Director of Public Programming at Caltech in Pasadena, California. Caltech is one of the world's most highly regarded research and education institutions and has been making incredible contributions to our comprehensive understanding of the sciences and their place in the world we live in. Caltech manages JPL, which is overseeing the research being conducted on Mars by perseverance and ingenuity. Caltech also has a long history of presenting public lectures on the sciences and is well known for its nearly 60 year history of presenting the finest in touring performing arts. For more information about our programs, you can go to events.caltech.edu. We are thrilled to be partnering with Zocalo Public Square, and it is my pleasure to introduce its executive director, Moira Shuri. Thank you, Michael. I'm Moira Shuri from Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events just like this one. Please find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org and listen to us on all the major podcast platforms. If you like today's conversation, please like us, follow us, and subscribe. We are honored to partner with Caltech Live Behind the Book to present today's conversation with Nobel Prize winner, Sir Paul Nurse, who joins us from his home in London. Moderating the discussion is Dr. Magdalena Zernika Goetz, a trailblazing scientist who has unveiled new knowledge about human embryonic cells she is the Bren Professor of Biology and Biological Engineering at Caltech, and she splits her time between Pasadena and the University of Cambridge. In her recent book, The Dance of Life, she revealed the wonder of the earliest and most profound moments in how we become human. Over to you, Magda. Thank you, Moira. This is really so exciting to be here to speak with one of the most notable figures in the field of genetics, Paul Nurse, and yet he struggled to get into university, an experience that taught him to be resilient, determined, and not afraid of failure. A clearly successful strategy as Paul became a Nobel Prize winner, knighted for his services to study cancer, former head of the most important cancer charity in the UK, then head of the prestigious Rockefeller University in New York, to finally return to Britain as a president of the Royal Society, and now director of one of the most wonderful places to do science, the Crick Institute in London. Finally, also the author of the book, What is Life, that I have here, this is one of most fascinating questions to address, what really life is, and Paul presented it in five great ideas of biology, highly recommended. So Paul climbed a long ladder to be where he is today, and his scientific path wasn't conventional, and that's what I love about it most. And actually the same can be said about his personal life. And here Paul and I have some common ground, Due to the revelation in our 50s, we each had to rethink our past history and where we are coming from, as this was kept secret for us, to us, from us, until we were in our 50s. And I hope we will be able to come back to it later. So Paul's love to the natural world was inspiration when, as a boy, he was making his very long walk to school in London 
And later, as a research scientist, his decision to study East caused some of the amusement among his colleagues. And yet he was right. It was the foundation of the most important discovery that he has made so far. What determines when and how cells divide, principle to East and humans bringing insight into the molecular nature of cancer. He discovered all those things because he says he really wanted to know and because of the beauty of biology. So Paul, I'm really thrilled to be able to speak with you today. And I would like to begin with the perhaps most simple question. Who was the boy who became a man who won the Nobel Prize? You are not from a bookish background. And so where the fascination to science come from? Your book starts with this incredible image of flying free butterfly, which really intrigued you and show you a beauty of science. So is this the biology, well, is this the beauty of biology itself that's inspired you? Or is it the beauty of the discovering something that nobody ever seen before, or maybe even never thought that this exists? Well, Magda, firstly, you, it's a, firstly, Magda, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and it's a pleasure um, to be speaking to everybody there. So good afternoon. It's evening here in London. Beautiful blue skies, I have to say. Um, beauty of biology, beauty of discovery. You know, Magda, you say it well, and it was both. I mean, biology is beautiful. The diversity of life is magnificent. How even the simplest insect, let alone um, a simple yeast cell, which you rightly indicated is what I spent my entire life studying. Um, there's beauty in all of that. But there is also a beauty in discovering something new, something that maybe um, is uh, never been thought of before. Sometimes, you know, there's a real excitement being on the edge of that. Maybe I am the only person who had thought this. Usually that isn't correct. Sometimes you, th you well, think sometimes it is. We can believe it is. But yeah. usually it's not. But I think the starting point was indeed when, as you uh, mentioned, um, was my interest in natural history when I was um, 10, 11, 12, 13, that sort of age. And the butterfly was a metaphor. I watched the yellow brimstone butterfly and it's on the book, the back of the book that you showed. Um, I watched um, butterflies flitting around the garden and I really did wonder, um, what is it that makes a, a butterfly different from a stone? Or for that matter, what is it that makes a butterfly similar to me? And these were big questions and I certainly didn't answer them at 12, 13. I'm not sure I've answered them now, 60 years later, but at least I've had a go with that book as to uh, communicate what I think we should be um, thinking about in trying to answer that that very important question, maybe the most important question in biology. Well, I think I agree with you. So I actually believe you are addressing this question very, very well. So I have to say that in the middle of the book, when I was, I was thinking, gosh, you know, I thought I know all of it, but then having it all together shown to me that my 14-year-old and me were all able to both able to enjoy it which just is just incredible so i highly recommend also for 14 year olds and and, and more well i so, wrote it i wrote it and always in the back of my mind whilst writing was a 14 year old boy or girl that okay, was always in my head here you are so not 13 year old one year more you have to wait 
So, Paul, I, there is something else that we share. I think it's admiration of art. And I think that you often said, and I often say this too, that, that science is very creative. Mm. And, you know, in a sense, isn't it like painting? Is that the painter needs skills to apply the paint across the canvas or sculpture needs to have a clay to be able to portray something uh, like this feature that I have behind me. But this is so much more than just the skills to be able to deliver a good painting. There is some kind of image that we have to portray. We have to interpret um, our observations. So can you explain where the creativity, where the creativity in science come from? Well, firstly, um, I want to say that um, art, artists and scientists share, and you already hinted at this, um, not only creativity, but what you could say, being an artisan, we have to do, scientists have to do things with their hands. They're not just working in the head. They have to get things to work with their, with their hands. Of course, an artist does too. Um, but it's not good enough either if you're an artist or a scientist just to be a skilled craftsman or craftswoman. You have to also have something creative to say, to paint, um, to demonstrate. And... What I like particularly to think about is what is common in the creative act for somebody who is an artist or for that matter working in the humanities and um, or writing a novel or whatever and a scientist because there is a similarity there, the creative act. And I think it has something to do with a number of things. One thing that's important and was argued by Arthur Kersler, I should say, many years ago, um, is putting things together, juxtaposing certain ideas or concepts or images that don't normally go together. And when they are put next to each other, again, metaphorically, they, um, they produce something else that's different, that's new. And it's the juxtapositioning that is interesting. Uh, uh, Kersler, who I read this idea from, um, made a comparison with comedians. Comedians are often funny because they put words together or circumstances together which are unusual and lead to something comical or humorous. And that's another aspect of creativity. And there is something more about the creativity, which is to think differently from how people have thought before you. And this addresses another problem, particularly in science, and I imagine for artists too, Often when you have an idea about how something works, you get stuck on a railway track. It's the only way you can think it will work. And you're just rattling down the railway line and thinking, this is, this is the idea, this is the hypothesis. And it's often very difficult to jump off that railway track into another railway track going in a different direction. And so creativity has got to also embrace the, I wouldn't quite call it randomness, but the ability to change your mind and to think of things in a different way. And great artists um, demonstrate that. If you take Picasso, for example, and look at the wide range, not only of the ways of expressing himself, but also what he was expressing, is indicative of somebody who was constantly changing tracks. And I... I, I find that often scientists get stuck on the same track. So I, with my students, and I still have quite a number of graduate students, 
um, I always argue, um, attack your own ideas, because if you don't, somebody else will. And if they get shaky, look to jump tracks and think of other ways um, that you might think about a problem. And even if they don't look shaky, think about that too, because you never know. Um, it may be there's one, two, three, or four explanations that can explain the phenomena that you're interested in. So creativity is key. It has a number of aspects. And I think we have something to learn from each other in these different um, lifestyles, different um, disciplines that um, artists and scientists have. Well, I can't agree with you more. And I think that often this creativity comes when uh, maybe, we, you know, when we wake up and the relaxation of our scrutiny and criticism towards our own thoughts is, uh, is relaxed. So, you know, you wake up with the idea, you think this, you dream about it, but most likely this was this coming out from the deep sleep when your brain is awake, but yet not too critical. You might find out, uh, you know, this eureka moment and something new is coming into the picture that you had never considered before. Or, and I fear this relates to the question to you, I know that in the Crick Institute, you started something very new or unusual, or I don't know this in any other institutes that I ever worked or, or visited, you introduce artists to, to the Institute. So you, you introduce, uh, you essentially open the doors to artists, musicians, and to the public. So do you think this is one way of uh, getting people that might think intensively about specific problem they want to address in a different way? So to get them out of the track, some of them complain and say this is annoying them because they can't focus on their work. But I actually think it's fantastic because this defocus might be what really uh, brings something very new. But what is your take well, on it? It sounds as if that probably um, is um, not quite what I was thinking when I did it, but I think you're completely right. I think that um, this notion of jumping the track requires you, exactly as you say, to take your mind from the place where it is into somewhere else, so you can look back in a different way. And I, I uh, often say um, to colleagues, you know, go on holiday, go for a walk, switch off your brain, and when it switches on again, it switches on in a different place. I'm a, 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 a glider pilot, and um, when I'm flying, I don't think of anything else but flying. And then when you come back um, to my normal intellectual life, it's different. Now, you didn't ask me that, but I, you were commenting on it, so I thought I would make a comment there. Yes, I think it's what I felt about coming into the building was slightly different, but I think it actually satisfies what you said. I wanted um, my colleagues, when coming into the building, to look around and to be full of awe and of wonder. Because mm -hmm. what they were going to do was an activity that was full of awe and wonder, and the building should reflect that. So we have a rather grand front that you may remember when you came in from Cambridge on the train. Um, it's got quite a, um, a, a magnificent atrium where you just, your mind soars up like a Gothic cathedral. You know, they always said they built a Gothic cathedral so your mind would soar to the roof. And outside, I applied actually to the Wellcome Trust for um, money to put up a public piece of public art. And there's a sculpture um, put up by Conrad Shawcross, who 
won the, um, the competition. It's called Paradigm. And it starts, it, it, it starts, it's a, a set of triangles that are built on top of each other, made of rusty iron, because it used to be an industrial site. It starts very thin, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it represents an idea growing. As you put extra sort of segments on, it gets more and more impressive. But because it starts from such a small beginning, it has a look of total instability. And the notion was ideas are unstable and maybe when you put one more thing on top, it all collapses. And it's called paradigm because it's making a paradigm, but that paradigm may collapse. And every time somebody comes to the Institute, they're supposed to look at it. I, I'm sure they don't. They're probably thinking, when can I get my first cup of coffee or something like that? But it is to demonstrate how we think. But you're right, we also put in um, a public gallery in front, uh, in the front part of the Institute, which is open to the public. We have exhibitions there. Some of them are art exhibitions related um, often to science. Sometimes, uh, re most recently, we had an exhibition celebrating what technicians do in science, wow. um, which is also a little unusual. A and, excellent idea, yes. Well, it is because they're, it, are forgotten they're, ignored and, they're ignored and forgotten, and as we know, crucial. So, they are crucial. So, then, Paul, maybe this, okay, yeah. Yes, one on. more thing, and then next to that is um, a school laboratory for seven to 11 year olds, primary school children who never see a laboratory, secondary school children do. And we have over 2000 seven to 11 year olds coming through that laboratory every year. Um, it's a, a, a really big activity, reaching out to local school kids in North London. But I interrupted you. No, no, not, not at all. I have to say that we should try to introduce also maybe projects for the seven to 12 year old, right? That they can build their para, you know, paradigm and, you know, and see how it goes. So I, I have another question that really was inspired by your book. And I think that it will be worth of um, sharing uh, your insight on this. So in your book, you say that uh, best research is both intensely individual and utterly communal. Mm. So what do you mean? Well, um, it's really to recognize that we carry out a research activity as an individual. And that's perhaps driving us, um, you know, to try and succeed and contribute something ourselves. But we're also utterly reliant on our colleagues and more widely, the scientific community around us. So we are not an individual island. Um, although we drive our own personal research, often in a very individual way. But though we do that, we have to recognize um, that we are part of a community. And having worked in different places in the world, I've, I've found that there is a real balance that you have to, um, to get which respects the individual and what they contribute and also acknowledges the community and how much they support that individual. And sometimes um, some cultures emphasize perhaps too much the individual and others can emphasize too much the entire communal activity. And we have to strike, at least from my perspective, the balance in between those two um, pressures because they are both 
exceedingly important. When I was in the US at the Rockefeller University when I was president, I probably learned more um, to recognize and acknowledge the individual because that is, uh, tends to be more US culture. Um, when in the um, UK, there was perhaps more of an emphasis on community, but putting both of those together, I think is the most powerful way to proceed. What guided your own creativity? So I wish to go back to Paul, who, who was this lit, little boy and then mm. growing boy and who fell in love with East and decided to devote part of his life. Essentially, I think as a scientist, you started your scientific journey with that specific model system. So now we understand that this just generated impressive and outstandingly important um, insight to what regulates the cancer, what regulates how cells divide. So I wonder first, what really started this journey for you? Where this thought, idea came from? Can you go back to this person you were when you were maybe 20 year old and uh, decided to embark mm. on, that, on that risky and some people thought ridiculous path and yet you persisted. So this was the very strong streak of individuality and determinism that was uh, shaping you at that time. And when did you realize that actually you were right? This is going to have a profound effect. Well, I, I think my first, my, my, my starting point is, um, was doing my PhD. Um, so uh, as you're quite right, around 22, that sort of age, and realizing how difficult research was. Uh, it is actually tough. And that made me think, if I'm going to do this, I've got to have a go at something that I think is important. Because I probably will fail. And I've got to get satisfaction from at least trying to do something I think is important. So that meant, um, how could I identify something that was important? Now, what I found is most people around me would be reading um, the um, popular journals, you know, Nature Science at the time, Cell was still yet to be um, um, fully operational, and were tending to follow what was already topical, already being pursued. And I thought, well, that's, that's probably not the wisest way to do it. So I thought I would try and strip back my thinking to first principles, not unlike these great ideas that this book has ended up um, uh, saying, and I began to think, what is it that distinguishes a living thing? So it's the same question as what is life. Mm -hmm. And one of the characteristics is the ability to reproduce yourself, and, and all organisms reproduce themselves. And then I thought, well, what is the fundamental process behind that? And I realized that, of course, is the reproduction of cells. I mean, that is the the basic and most um, core fundamental. Um, example of reproduction, the division of one cell to two. And understanding how that came about and how temporal order of the different events that had to take place that um, led from the birth of a cell to its division was probably the most, the simplest developmental sequence that occurred in living systems and was at the same time a developmental sequence that all living things had to go through. And um, so maybe there was something there that was going to be common 
um, to large areas of life. I mean, we would now say uh, prokaryotes, eukaryotes, and so on. I wasn't sure how large they would be, but there were likely to be commonalities there. So all of this was going on in my head as I was failing in my PhD experiments as to think about something I could do. So I thought understanding that and understanding maybe in the first instance how it was all controlled, because obviously it would be very complicated to know all the components and so on of the mechanism, but to understand how that was uh, regulated, the temporal order, what coordinated growth with cell reproduction was a very important problem that frankly wasn't really being looked at by anybody, I mean at the time or hardly. And the more I read about it, the more I realised that um, that it was an important problem and that the way to address it was through genetics. And I read Lee Hartwell. Um, Lee Hartwell got the um, Nobel Prize in 2001 when Tim Hunt and myself did as well. And Lee had used budding yeast to start dissecting the um, yeast cell cycle, the budding yeast cell cycle, pulling on his previous work, which was on uh, development of viruses. So he also had in his head developmental sequences, starting with the virus um, and then turning it to a, a bigger problem. So there was a sort of overlap in our thinking. Um, but my problem was I wasn't a geneticist at that time and I wasn't working on yeast at that time. But I decided I would learn both of those things. And in fact, after I uh, finished my PhD, which was on uh, botany and, uh, and a fungus and amino acid metabolism, which is what my I could get my PhD thesis down from up there, um, that I would try and do this problem. And I went to Switzerland to work with somebody called Urs Leupold, who taught me genetics. I spent six, nine months in his lab. He, he just taught me it, for, not for his own benefit, but just because he wanted to talk, teach a young person interested in it in Bern in Switzerland. And then I went to Murdoch Mitchison, another person who was a, a great supporter of me in Edinburgh. And um, he was interested in um, how cells grew. And I combined the genetics to his understanding of, in this case, fission yeast and how it grew uh, to develop this project. And I want to say one more thing about these two gentlemen who are both deceased. I worked in total about seven years in Switzerland and in, um, in Edinburgh in Scotland. I published about 15 papers. They didn't put their name on any paper I produced. I was only 23 or 24 when I started this because they didn't think they'd contributed enough. They were just very happy to support a young kid like me doing what I wanted to do. It was a huge um, statement of generosity that I always like to acknowledge. It's very good that you bring it. And I have to admit that, you know, when I was growing up as a scientist in Poland, in the lab of uh, Andrzej Tarkowski, he had uh, the same as the same gesture towards me. When uh, I started to embark on something that he felt was my idea and was unique and different, he said, well, you publish, you can publish. He actually encouraged me to publish it under my name. So I have a few publications just with my name. Very unusual. Very mm. unusual. To, to a certain extent, when I moved to Cambridge and I realized how unusual it is, I was nearly embarrassed about it. I thought, oh, maybe nobody supported me. Nobody wanted to put their name towards me to help me. So, you know, that's, that's incredible how it was in the past and how it changed. But Paul, coming back 
to coming back to how cell divides. Mm -hmm. So we know so much. We discover this master regulatory genes and more. We understand cell cycle, nature of it. And we know that cancer means that the cell cycle control goes wrong. So please tell us, you know, why is this that we still not are able to cure cancer, to prevent it from happening or stop it when it happens? Why it is that we cannot prevent specific group of cells that goes wrong from dividing? Why do we have to act globally and therefore mm -hmm. of course it doesn't work because it protects life? Well, it enables life. So give us your insight. And can we ever cure cancer? And when would it be? Well, let, I'll give you my opinion on this. Um, what um, I've worked on all my life is what you could say is the core regulation of cell reproduction, the developmental sequence of cells go through their cell cycle, of what controls the onset of those events, how they are coordinated. Those processes are common to all cells, both normal cells, both actually from yeast to human beings, it's highly conserved, which is something we may talk about a, a little later, but also for cancer cells. And um, I thought for a long time, and I was actually uh, uh, not correct on it, that it would be mostly irrelevant for cancer, because actually these core genes were common, they were needed for all cell types, whether cancerous or not. But what was around them was a periphery of, uh, of regulatory controls that operate in our own bodies, which um, respond to all sorts of signals um, to do with uh, your differentiation, what organ you're in, where the uh, tissue is damaged and the like. And mm -hmm. there's probably 200, 300, 400 genes in some network surrounding the core. And it is, in fact, defects and alterations in this periphery that where we look for the problems of cancer, because these are growth regulatory in some respects. They all come through the cycling dependent kinases and other core functions, um, but they don't give you specificity, those core functions. The specificity comes from the defects from the periphery. And so that's the reason why I think the core is less important, except the core is also regulating progression through the cycle, which ensures genomic stability. And of course, when genomic stability breaks down, then you generate the DNA damage that can also cause cancer. So in fact, I was not entirely correct because the, the core genes do have some effects and mm -hmm. um, they therefore result as, um, uh, as potential targets. Now, that complexity means that uh, we are probably looking at a number of hundreds, several hundreds of genes that are important for cancer. And I think that's what, how, it, how it's come out. And this in turn means that different cancers are caused by defects in different combinations of those three or 400 genes, which explains fundamentally why um, we have so many different types of cancer. Traditionally, we, we think of uh, breast cancer or cancer of the liver, where the organ is that it arose. But there's all sorts of reasons why you can get cancers in different places. <clears throat> and if we are to treat a particular cancer, then we have to understand which of those peripheral genes are altered and how what impact they have on the regulatory system and how you might interfere with it. 
This in turn will mean, given there's hundreds of genes involved, that there will be um, potentially hundreds of different treatments that you have to think about if you want to uh, be specific in the way that you treat cancer. So I would say, given that complexity, we will never have a cure for cancer. I mean, people could argue about that, but we couldn't. We could have many cures for cancer, which will be built gradually over the years. So it's a little different from the magic bullet of penicillin, say, where you mm. kill bacteria with a single a medical and scientific advance. I think what we will see in cancer is gradual improvement in understanding of what is a hugely complicated disease, definition of the different cancers, and then over time, specific treatments and cures for those cancers, knowing where in the network it's gone wrong. So when will we cure cancer? I'm not sure we will ever cure cancer, but I'm sure we will move ourselves gradually over time into a much better place so that many cancers can be cured or controlled, but probably will never escape the curse of cancer completely. Well, thank you so much for giving this honest answer. I know we would love to hear the answer, yes, five years from now, but that's a really complex answer, but, um, but you explain it very beautifully. So I wish to come to uh, personal genetics, right? Mm. Now. And I know you were answer, answering this question uh, many times over the last few years, but I think that it is so fascinating that I would like to bring it back. So to explain to those people who do not know yet about this, that rather late in your life, you discovered that your family roots are not exactly as you thought they were. Uh, can you really please tell us a little bit? And before you do, I wish to say that only just a few months ago, this year, three months ago, uh, I discovered also family secret kept in my life through the generations. And this is because my um, daughter decided to do genetic testing. And we found that actually uh, the origins of my own family are very different that I was always said they were. I was always said that I'm partially Italian and it turned out that I'm partially Jewish. And I understand why it was kept secret. The family decided, well, they started to stay in Poland during the war and they also stayed in Poland after the war. And antisemitism was so strong that with this decision of staying in the country, this was really well kept secret from my father and from me. I think it only now makes sense to me what my father was telling to me uh, before he died. And uh, only now I am sort of discovering the conversations that I had with them that makes a totally new sense to me. So it's really fascinating to rediscovering our roots. In your case, the story was much bigger and I wish you to tell this to us what it was. And specific question that I would like to ask you is, yesterday was Mother's Day here in US. And I was wondering what would you tell to your real mother if she were alive yesterday? Well, um, I, I would probably ask her, who, who was my father? Is probably the question I would ask her. I would ask the same question. I was so, thinking only my answer. Um, I, I can explain this and the story behind it if you give me enough time to do that. Um, the, um, uh, I, I came from a working class family in North London. Um, I had... Um, uh, uh, two brothers and a sister. We lived in a small flat with my uh, parents, my grandmother. 
Um, I was the only one who stayed on at school after the age of 15. Uh, I went to university, I became an academic, and I became a geneticist, and I always wondered why I was um, had accomplished more academically um, than the rest of my family and my siblings. And that intrigued me, but I never came to a solution. Came to America, um, president of Rockefeller University, um, got tired of queuing all the time um, in an immigration, applied for a green card, and um, was returned, I was turned down by Homeland Security. Now, I was a bit surprised at the time because um, I was turned down. I was rather proud of them for doing it, actually. Um, at the time, I was a Nobel laureate. I um, was president of a, uni a, a, um, a, a university. Uh, in, uh, uh, and, prestigious um, university. Yeah, and one of the uh, a very prestigious um, uh, university, as you say. And, and yet they turned me down. And they turned me down because they didn't like my birth certificate. And my birth certificate... Uh, was what was called a short birth certificate in the UK. And it named uh, where I was born and um, my birth date and so on and my nationality, but not my parents. And um, they, the Homeland Security said, uh, we want to know more about you, so get a long birth certificate, which will tell you, uh, give more information. So I wrote away and um, to back to London, got a long birth certificate. And I remember this, I, I'd just been on holiday in Australia and I'd just come back with my wife and I was in the big office in Rockefeller. You'll see here, I'm now in a small office in um, London, but that was a huge office. And uh, I was there and I had my PA and my PA's assistant and my lab manager and my wife, and we were just going through the mail. And then I heard my, um, my PA uh, talking to Anne in a bit of a whisper and saying, um, we, we had this letter back with uh, Paul's um, birth certificate in it. And is it possible that he got the name of his mother wrong? And I heard this and I said, don't be ridiculous. Of course, I know the name of my mother. Um, but everybody's ears pricked up and sort of looked at me and I opened the envelope and there is indeed my birth certificate. And I looked down and indeed the name there for my mother was my sister. It was my sister, not my mother. I, I couldn't quite work out this. So I looked to see who my father was and there was just a line, a dash. And my wife, Anne, who's a bit quicker on the uptake than I am on this sort of thing, said, you do know what this might mean, don't you? And I said, well, I don't really know. I'm not really quite sure what's going on here. And um, uh, she cast her eyes to heaven, of course. And um, then um, uh, we thought about it. And to cut a long story short, it turned out that my mother at 17 got pregnant, was sent from London, from Wembley, where the stadium is, which is where we, um, where we live, to Norwich, where um, her aunt lived, where my mother's aunt lived, um, gave birth to me, and my grandmother came up and pretended she was the mother and brought me back to protect her daughter. Because this was uh, 1949, it was still a great dishonour to um, uh, have a, a pregnancy at 17, 18, and to be unmarried. And, um, and then they pretended my grandparents to be my parents and never told me, never told me. This would be impossible today. Of course, it wouldn't happen today. And I was never officially adopted even. I mean, it, it was a remarkable thing. I entered the system, um, but I was never officially adopted. And I only found out 
with this birth certificate. And there was one person, my mother, real mother, birth mother had died. My grandparents, who were my parents, um, had died. What's interesting about this is, is, is everybody changes their position in your family. So my brothers became my uncles, my sister became my mother, my uh, parents became my grandparents, my grandmother became my great-grandmother, and so it went on and on and on. So I've started calling everybody by their double um, assignation. Um, so I can keep it straight in my in straight in, in my head. But in the house I was born in Norwich was an 11 year old girl who takes interest in babies because my brothers said, oh, when I asked them, um, well, mum went away to Norwich and came back with you. They didn't think anything more about it. But the girl said, yes, this is all true. And we were all sworn to secrecy and nobody told me at all. And here's me, who's not a bad geneticist, and this was kept secret for over half a century by my less than sophisticated family. So that's my story. Yeah, that's incredible. I think it's really incredible how we can reevaluate everything that what have happened during our childhood. But I imagine Paul would have become Paul as Paul is right now for us, <laughs> even if he was brought up by his real mom. So that's how I think about it. I wish to say something, Paul, because we don't have so much time and soon mm. I will have to start taking questions, not from my own list of questions, which is much longer than what we were able to cover today. But I would like to mention just maybe two things uh, at the end. So one is that I know that at one point of your life when the lab is going very well, and I'm sure that like many, many scientists, when they're very young and start their research, they love to do experiments. They're able to discover things by uh, using their not just imagination we often use our hands in the lab and this combination of hands imagination obsession passion all of this somehow is just bubble in which scientists offer leaf um, and of course communication with our colleagues is a very important aspect of it but in mid-90s uh, you switched your role in scientific life from being a person at the bench to uh, become uh, the director of one of the biggest UK research charities. And then, of course, lots of uh, other big, big jobs were followed from that. So this is really unusual step for a young scientist to make that step. So I wonder what it is that made you choose that path at that moment of your life. And I'm thinking about it in the context of what you have learned about yourself when you change that path at that moment. And I'm thinking also about it, what would be the lesson for scientists, mm. uh, young scientists who are often having this dilemma to, to, to decide what they're going to be in the future, staying in the lab or go and do more what you are doing right now. Tell us about it. Well, I can. I mean, I, I was an experimental scientist for about 20 years, if you include my PhD, and I had very little responsibility beyond that, in, in, in fact. And so I didn't have teaching responsibilities. I didn't have a permanent job. I was always on uh, short term contracts, um, but it meant I could keep working in the laboratory. I was then um, actually... Um, for a couple of years, I was uh, head of a, a small department in Oxford, so I was a professor, made a professor. I didn't like it, actually. I found university 
especially ancient universities, rather uh, um, time-consuming and um, wasted quite a lot of my time. Let's and, explain that ancient means Oxford, Cambridge. Yes, Ox ancient means Oxford and Cambridge. And, um, and then I was asked if I would go and run uh, the Imperial Cancer Research Fund in London, which was a precursor for Cancer Research UK, which I set up some years later. Now, I can tell you exactly what I thought at the time. And the deal I did when I went back to run ICRF, I said, I, I will do this. And, um, and I'll tell you why I felt I should do it. And it was this. I was doing research just following my curiosity. I wasn't at all sure that I was doing anything that would be useful or utilitarian. I mean, I was working with yeast. I hadn't yet solved the problem of quite how it worked. Um, but you know, I, you were working on the most important problem. Right? Yes, How I knew I, that the world, the world didn't necessarily see it quite that way. Um, I thought I was, and I was very confident about it. And I had this sort of deal in my head. I thought, well, I'm quite good at managing things. I'd already realized that. And I thought this, if I'm good at managing stuff and could run something for half my life, the other half I can just pursue whatever I find interesting. So when I went back to um, ICRF in central London, I said, yes, I'll run it, but the other half of my life I want with my lab. And I set it up so that I really did spend half my life, really, not approximately, not half a day, not one day, half of my week was in my laboratory and the other half I ran something. And what made me feel comfortable about it is just that I was paying, if you like, for the privilege to follow my curiosity wherever it led me by doing work, by running something, which I was quite good at. Yeah, and I that's mm -hmm. honestly how it's remained. I still spend half of my life in this big damn institute here, in my lab, which is just next door, which is why I'm in this small um, office here and I don't have a big one. I pay for my privilege of having curiosity by running things. And that's really the truth. I don't actually even enjoy running things. I know I'm in a fairly happy sort of person, but I'm not. In fact, it doesn't turn me on as it does many people. Okay. It's oh. the lab next door that turns me on. So here I have the very final question to you. Despite that I have a long list, I'm going to go and take the questions from audience now. But the final, you have, you say you don't like it. And I sort of understand, but I know you have to make often extremely difficult decisions yeah. like who to appoint and who not. You chaired the committee of the Wellcome Trust and you chaired the committee when I was in front of that committee. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I passed, fortunately. <laughs> so how do you recognize the best scientists, the most creative scientists that apply to the Crick Institute or who you have a pleasure to meet in different type of organization when you are chairing committees and they have to either get their funding for the next five years or not. How do you make this decision in 15 minutes? Often this is how much you are, you know, we are given when we are coming to, to be in front of you. Smell. Smell. There's uh, uh, something about people that it, you can you can detect it you can taste it you can know when you have somebody who is creative who's somebody who has energy who's somebody who's bold 
They may or may not be extrovert, introvert, or whatever. They may not be articulate. It's easy to get um, distract, distracted by um, people who are articulate. But there is a key feature. They have to have a passion, a real passion of wanting to know the answer. And if you can pick that up in 15 minutes and they look capable and they look as if they've done something, give them a chance. Simple as that. Excellent, Les. Really excellent answer. I'm going to uh, now go to all of the questions that we were sent in the meantime. And here you are. What creative art do you think is the most complementary to science and invention? Hmm. I'm not pre-selecting arty questions, but I'm going to go with this one as it comes first. For some reason, I think it is um, it's painting and sculpture linked to painting. And it is because of what I said before. It is a combination of extraordinary skill of artisanship with a creative approach to the subject and how you are presenting that subject and the ideas that come from it. So it is the connection of the head with craftsmanship. And I think you see that particularly with painting. So I think it, it would be painting. I like your answer and agree. <laughs> what have you discovered lately that has helped you stay optimistic? I'm I'm basically a very optimistic person, um, to the great annoyance of my family, who just think I'm um, ridiculously cheerful all the time. We've just had an election result in my country that I'm not very keen on, and yet I still remain cheerful, um, or, uh, for example. Um, and I think it is, I'm optimistic in the fundamental decency of the majority of people. Of course, I understand evil. Of course, I understand it's not everybody. But fundamentally, people are decent and often only behave in bad ways when there's very particular circumstances that do that. So I think it has something, my optimism has something to do with the decency of people and with the civilization that has come from that. Well, you talked about art, um, but civilization more generally, literature and the like, makes me feel just optimistic. I, I, I've got to open an exhibition in Oxford, actually, celebrate uh, next week, uh, celebrating the 400th year of, uh, of the Botanical Gardens. Um, and it's being held in the Bodleian Library, which is the main library of Oxford U University. And I was thinking about it last night. And I thought, you know, libraries and gardens are the peak of human civilization. You cannot help but feel optimistic when you're sitting in a library surrounded by um, the uh, fruits of civilization or sitting in a garden surrounded by the fruits of nature. And that, that's not a proper answer, but that's, that's what that's, makes me optimistic. That's a beautiful answer. And I think it's a real, real answer. Okay, we have one more. Well, we have so few questions, but one more that, um, uh, yes, that relates to the toughest life experience. So what has been your toughest life experience that led you to become a geneticist? Ah, that led me to become a geneticist. And how has it helped you 
to be a better human being. So it assumed that you, it became, it helped you to become a better human being. So how would you see this connection be, between becoming geneticist and better human being? Well, I think the, the toughest um, professional decision was the one you've already brought up when I moved back from Oxford to run an institute in London, because um, this meant that I would have to reframe my thinking and I wasn't sure I was ready for it I mean at, at, at that time so that I would have to run things. Um, the tough decision to make a geneticist become a geneticist earlier of course and I think I answered that um, because genetics is a beautiful subject it, it, it is it is in some respects um, and I would say that wouldn't I the, one of the more intellectual sides of biology, genetics, and the use of genetics. And I was attracted by the beauty of the thinking and the reasoning. You know, you look at the famous experiments of um, Crick and Brenner to establish the triplet code, and you're just full of wonder at the beauty of the thinking. And that isn't exactly a tough decision, but I... I felt I wanted to be part of that, if only a small part. I wanted to be part of, uh, of, uh, of that tradition. And not only is it beautiful, but it's immensely powerful um, genetics in revealing how things work about phenomena that you really have no idea what the molecular basis might be. It's the doorway into molecular mechanism. Yeah. through studying the whole organism and the changes that have there. We saw that with Drosophila development, for example, um, and uh, we and, ho and homeotic mutants. And we see that with yeast in a variety of different um, um, arenas. So um, I've wandered a bit off the most difficult decision, but um, that certainly was um, influenced my attraction to genetics. I accept it. And I have one more question. In your opinion, what exactly is the meaning of life? And I had actually the same question on my list of questions. I'm reading this one because I didn't manage to go there. What's the meaning of life? Well, in a personal <laughs> way, in a personal way as well yeah. as scientific. Well, I, I should say my book is about what is life and it, not about the meaning of life. Absolutely. So I ought yeah. to emphasize that, that um, the meaning of life, which sounds like a Monty Python sort of... Um, um, film or book if uh, and I find many Americans like um, Monty Python so I hope that's understandable I don't know what the meaning of life is I think the local meaning is um, looking after your family developing your family looking after your colleagues looking after your friends there's a meaning there and it's part of the meaning of being human of humanity of empathy with others on a bigger and broader scale the meaning of life whilst you're on the planet is to try and improve the lot of humankind. And that may be through some intellectual discovery. It may be entirely local, as I was saying, your local family. It may be by producing some wonderful piece of art. It may be by political leadership in some sense. But it has to be aimed at improving the lot of humanity, whether small or big and in whatever arena you can be most effective. I think that I will have to 
it's a beautiful way of closing it. And it's really a pity that we have to close it. But I'm afraid we have to because the time comes to the end. And thank you so much, Paul, uh, for speaking with me and with all of the audience. I would like to also thank Zakalo Public Square at Cal and Caltech for presenting this conversation. There will be written summary of our conversation uh, on uh, Zakalo website by tomorrow, along with the interviews with uh, both of us. So thank you very much, audience, for listening to us, and I hope you continue to explore those ideas. Thank you. Thank Paul. you, Magda. Very enjoyable. Thank you. Very enjoyable. Thank you. <laughs>